It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tortoise. Hello, I'm James Harding. It's Monday the 8th of January. It's the beginning of 2024. Even before the unexpected visits us, we know it's going to be a huge year for news. Four billion people go to the polls. There are elections in the States and the UK. First time we've had presidential and general elections the same year for decades. India, Taiwan, South Africa, the Olympic Games, the Euros... Taylor Swift's coming to Europe. There's tons to look forward to. We're going to try and take it one day or at least a week at a time. From our newsroom here in Tortoise, welcome to the news meeting. The Justice Secretary and the Minister responsible for the Post Office are due to meet later today to discuss how to help hundreds of branch managers who were wrongly convicted in the Horizon IT scandal. The IDF released footage of their ground troops in Gaza City as their top brass said they'd now finished dismantling Hamas's military infrastructure in the north. Alaska Airlines says it had to cancel 170 flights on Sunday after the US Federal Aviation Administration grounded all Boeing 737 MAX 9 jets, fitted with the same panel as the one which broke off an Alaska Airlines plane on Friday. The Environment Agency has warned there could be more significant river flooding in the Midlands, Lincolnshire and on the River Thames. And the Golden Globe goes to... Oppenheimer! Joining me to try and make sense of this first full week of 2024, what should be leading the news, I'm joined by our Deputy Editor, Giles Wattel. Hello. Good break? Yeah, really good. Not much faith in my own gastro um, enterital system, but apart from that, pretty good. <laughs> Great. Not a story. <laughs> that you want to hear it's... any more about. <laughs> um, I'm joined too by Chloe Hadjmuth there. Chloe, do you have a good break? I had a lovely one. Enforced non-working is the way to go. I love it. And Katie Searle, Katie and I worked together, uh, ran the political coverage of the BBC for years, probably felt like decades. I don't know how you look at a political year now not having to, you know, run 24-7 news coverage. I'm both um, excited watching from outside and pleased that I'm not inside <laughs> just this, this time round. But um, yeah, it's going to be a big one. Is it going to be a year, Katie, just on the politics where it turns out to be the predictable is the most likely outcome. 
I think so. I mean, I, I just think I wrote something the other day. I was just, you know, I've been doing some private polling of myself every time I speak to anyone that I think has got an opinion worth having about, uh, you know, the size of a majority or a hung parliament. Well, you know, the people are very cautious. But what I note now is people have stopped saying the words hung parliament. So, you know, I think that's probably gone. And I think it's really the question is where we are on a Labour majority. Interesting. It's, it seems to me the thing that I heard just before Christmas, which was someone in Downing Street saying, we keep doing these focus groups and people aren't listening. And then when you look at Rishi Sunak's behaviour, he started to behave like a person who feels that people aren't listening. Speaking of what's predictable, at the end of our predictions episode, which came out on New Year's Day, do go back and have a listen if you've missed it. I asked whether or not you'd write in, call in with predictions for the year ahead. And we had a few. Here's one I thought was really on the money, Paul wrote in to say this. Missing from the predictions was any reference to the state and future of public services. As someone working in higher education, my prediction for 2024 is that we will see the first bankruptcy of a major university in the UK. One thing to mention is if you want to weigh in on the conversations we're having in the news meeting, please do so. You can either just send an email, as Paul just did, newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com, or the other thing to do is drop us a voicemail. There's something particularly lovely about hearing someone's voice, the passion in it, the feeling, the experience. So do do that. Send it to newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. All right, let's get going. Uh, Long story short, Giles, what's yours? The Biden problem. Katie? The post office. It's leading the news, but why is it and where will it go? Chloe? Racism and misogyny in the police service. Is that a 2024 story or 2023 hangover? (laughs) Um, Let's start with the post office. It's a strange one, this, because it's hardly a new one. It's more than a decade old. And now, certainly in the UK, it's been leading on the front pages the last few days. Why? I think it's it's really interesting. I mean, yeah, you say it's more than a decade. It's, I think, over 20 years now and it's just exploded uh, for those of you who haven't seen a newspaper is all over the news in fact it's it's leading most of the bulletins as well the main reason is because there's been this incredible ITV drama uh, led by Toby Jones a great actor who tells the story of basically one man's mission to expose what happened at the post office which uh, saw many hundreds sub postmasters being accused of theft and false accounting. Many went to jail, uh, many lost their life savings, um, some committed suicide. So this has been very, very uh, long running, but now we're finally getting some movement and it's down to a drama. But I think there are other reasons, really. I think, you know, it's, it's the, well, the drama, first of all, the drama explains this incredible kind of, actually on the face of it, quite difficult story. I remember when I, I first came across it many, many years ago, and it sounded like it was sort of not true, actually. Could this really happen? Uh, you know, it's quite technical. It's all to do with this system called the Horizon Computer System. Um, but actually, when you see the drama, it's about, you know, what the British love most, which is the underdog, the small person in our villages and losing this their life you know and their reputation and their reputation their you know the families the the shame of it but Katie can I just be a slight killjoy on this it's obviously an amazing piece of television is it news is this a reheat of a very old story by a bunch of papers trying to answer public feeling without much new information it feels to me there's a pile on around Ed Davey now leader of the Liberal Democrats, who was Postal Affairs Minister, as I understand it, 
back 2010, 2012. But what has anyone actually got that's new on this story? Uh, well, what's happened, the, the first thing to say is actually not a lot. Um, and, that, and I think we should talk about where it goes, really, because I think that's the biggest question. I do think that we're post-Christmas and nothing much has happened. Um, I think, actually, if something had exploded in the Middle East, you know, or that had, you know, something big else had happened, definitely it would be lower down the orders. Um, but nothing's happened, really, for the last week. Um, but what has changed is partly because of that, because, as we know, when there's a, vo- a vacuum, the politicians get asked about what's really at the top of the news, is that there's been kind of quite a lot of political move- movement so you saw yesterday the Prime Minister saying he's looking at whether to exonerate all of these people. And the question for me, as Parliament goes back this week and settles and meets and they've moved forward meetings to do it this week, there's a real urgency around it, is if I was doing uh, the campaign for for, the, um, for these people that are fighting the post office, I would say it's all about momentum. And how are you going to keep that in the news? And how are you going to get Parliament to change? Because as we all know, Parliament changes very, very slowly. How do you get all these people exonerated and they're really looking at change of bringing legislation Uh, and that's incredibly rare. And how much risk is there for Ed Davey in this? I think actually it's low level. I really do. I think, you know, I think he didn't respond brilliantly when he was asked about it uh, last week because the headlines uh, that came out was, well, it was, you know, post office lied to me. I am sorry, but they lied to me, which may actually be true. But I think the first instance you just say, do you know what? I, you know, I should have done more. Yeah. It's interesting because I think one of the potential political surprises of 2024 will be the Lib Dems, their capacity yeah. to turn around their post-Brexit performance. Um, and if so, that will be the making of Ed Davey. Yeah. Chloe, what do you think of this? I think I, I'm not sure whether people have spoken enough about the legal system that supported this, which I find deeply shocking. I mean, when you look at how many cases this was, it just seems incredible that nobody clocked it, that nobody within the legal institutions said, hang on a minute, there's something funny here. There's no way that Britain's sub postmasters have suddenly all become corrupt overnight. I don't know. Well, this is it. Sorry to jump in. Just, I think that's one of the most crucial questions here is um, to explain to listeners, post offices, can, the post office rather can bring its own cases and uh, run its own appeals. What? You know, and, and of course, the post office are not the only people. The RSPCA can do the same. You know, so do, is it time now to look at how these systems work? And, by the way, a public inquiry has been going for three or four years. How long? You know, really, they need to cut this off and just get on with a solution to it. Charles, what do you think? Well, you want justice from the courts. You were asking, Katie, if there was enough new in evidentiary terms for this to be a story. I suspect no, but it is a story nonetheless. And it's a story uh, now that the series has come out of institutional inertia. And the key point is the... uh, only a few dozen um, convictions have been overturned and the hundreds that haven't been. Absolutely no good reason for that. Very good reason for legislation now to get that done quickly. But that still leaves the Jandis and Jandis um, legal system in the dock for having failed to do this uh, for so many years. Um, and just, uh, you just, also mentioned, sorry, just one other point. You also mentioned a bunch of newspapers getting behind this story. I would actually quibble on a sort of pedantic point. Uh, This is pretty shameful for newspapers. There was a time, all the president's men, when a newspaper could make the news and get a president, lever a president out of the White House. That time's gone. Newspapers aren't trusted enough anymore. Probably all all their own fault. Now you have to have 
a TV art show. imitate life. Not well, not just a TV show. This is a drama. This wasn't a documentary, and so you have to have art imitate life for life to imitate art again. Yeah, there's a massive question. I mean, uh, oh, and by the way, you need a hero. So, so one of the problems was hundreds of postmasters. This became a story when it fit the the Hollywood model, and you had Bates as a hero. Which raised the question about inquiries where you don't have that. So, contaminated blood is a really good example, to my mind, of an inquiry that does, if you pay attention, tell you extraordinary things about the way systems work and people suffer. But I probably haven't paid good enough attention, but I haven't seen a Mr. Bates in that same way. It's quite shocking what you say there, Charles, because there's another element to that, which is what's happened, not just to newspapers, but to the world of docs and documentaries, because it is now the case I thought it when I watched Succession, that Succession did a better job of covering the media than I ever did covering the media. You know, so the extent to which it's a drama doc or a dramatization of a perceived reality. There was, did you see the Grenfell play last year? They did an extraordinary thing, which was they just put it on using only words that had been spoken in the course of the inquiry. Obviously, it's a distillation, you know, so it's quite filtered what you eventually get but incredibly dramatic yeah. and that takes us to kind of some why do some stories get that immediate wind that pick up yeah. and Grenfell was another one I mean obviously it took the fire to to really really put it into that but it was known about for many 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 years it was there uh, well Horizon's more complicated done. because I think Horizon's example of journalism struggling with something that is difficult and systemic there were people you know, long before this ITV drama came out, saying this is the biggest scandal. I mean, our own colleague Kerry Thomas has been in this newsroom for years saying this is the biggest, uh, you know, you know, mass injustice, right, or miscarriage of justice, sorry. Um, yeah, it, know, it, I mean, it, exactly that. It just, it, and there were some very good um, panoramas and, and and lots of other journalists have done some really good work on it, but it never got that, what I call news wind. It never got that pick up until now. I'm not sure <laughs> that's a phrase really you want to trademark, <laughs> Katie, but thank you for the... But I can't help you think it's so everyone knows what I mean. It just gets that moment and it's picked up and it's off. All right, Chloe, what's on your mind? So um, the head of Britain's police chiefs, Gavin Stevens has become the most senior serving police officer to accept that there is institutional racism in the police force. And this phrase has been something that's been battered about quite a bit. And so to have somebody so senior come out and say this, there have been, it's, you know, 25 years since the Stephen Lawrence murder. Um, I don't know how many years and how many inquiries since then with recommendation after recommendation for the police service and still we're at a stage where the black population of Britain is 3.5% and yet they account for 10% of recorded stop and searches, 25, 27% of um, use of force incidents and 35% of taser incidents. And Chloe, how much is the emphasis in that phrase on institutional and how much is it on racism? I, can you just explain, I always get confused, and I know I should understand it more clearly, institutional racism, what is it? It's the collective failure of an organisation to provide appropriate and professional service to people because of their colour, culture or ethnic origin. So you're failing so, these people, you're not giving them a, a fit-for-purpose police service. So, but, but 
it's collective. I, it's yeah. not saying the individual police officer no. is a racist person. It's saying that organisationally we behave in a way that is racist. Exactly. And and what's interesting here is that there was some debate about unconscious bias and it seems that somewhere along the line the police service has gone from tackling racism head on to focusing on unconscious bias. And actually this in a way exonerates individuals of their racism. Oh, you did this awful thing, you treated somebody terribly, it wasn't your fault, you weren't conscious of it. And instead of saying, well, what are we going to do about that? They're making people realise that they have racist tendencies. Do you, think, but do you think that? I think that forcing people to understand how their upbringing or their own background or their own social expectations may be received by other people is quite helpful. It's not the whole answer. I totally get that. Well, interestingly, the statistics don't bear that out. So statistically, oh, really? there's no evidence that unconscious bias training has an effect on racism, institutional racism. But that's because they're two totally different things. One is individual behaviour and the other one is collective impact, isn't it? Well, I mean, in a sense, you have to you have to tackle it on an, it's about training, right? It's about how does an institution implement uh, policies internally to change the way that it operates. And surely you have to work on two different levels. You've got to work on the individual level mm. and you have to work on the institutional level as well. But is there a risk here, and sorry, I'm, there's a danger on a highly sensitive subject I'm just thinking aloud, but is there a risk here that what people begin to think is institutional racism becomes, if you like, a safe mea culpa? It's a safe way for an organisation to say, look, we've got work to do, but without any individuals taking responsibility for what those outcomes are. Well, there is that. I mean, I mean, what this police uh, police chief, Gavin Stevens, is saying is that we're not doing enough. We need to be changing our institution, the, its policies, its procedures. There needs to be a massive overhaul. So he's calling for a massive overhaul. He's saying that, for years and years, we have not had black voices involved in the way in which we operate and the way that our institution is constructed in the policies and procedures. And we need to start involving. And, and also, there's a big issue that police services across the UK do not have enough black and ethnic minority serving police officers. They're not able to retain the ones that they do have. For some rather strange reason, the... Um, disciplinaries and um, and dismissals of black and ethnic minority police officers are far higher than white police officers. And there doesn't seem to be enough data to explain this disparity. Also, that's a story. That's a story. Another one, and I think this comes hand in hand, at the same time as this, there has been another scandal about misogyny in the British police force, um, which is surrounding Claire's Law. And when I talk to people about Claire's Law, they're like, what's that? And it's quite astounding to me that people don't know what it is. So Claire's Law is the right of people to find out about their partner's violent history. So if I have a new partner, I have the right to go to the police force and say, I have concerns about my partner. Can you please disclose to me whether they have any history of violence or abuse of women? And the police force has to disclose to you this person's past. And this is supposed to protect women. But there's a problem here. Since this law came into came into force, um, the police forces in England and Wales have not had any extra funding. They've not had any extra staff to back this. And so they're not advertising this. Women don't know that this is an option for them. 
And even worse than that, the women that do know are not being served properly. There is huge inconsistency across forces. Some forces are quite good at doing this. If you apply, somewhere up to 75% of applications get um, answered. There may be reasons why your application gets rejected, specific reasons. They may feel that you don't have the right to find out this information. Um, But there are forces where a tiny, tiny proportion of these applications are being answered or they're being answered with huge delays, months and months. And this particularly um, was shown in Wiltshire just before, uh, towards the end of last year, Wiltshire Force um, referred itself to the Independent Office for Police Conduct for an urgent review of 3,500 cases where women had applied to Wiltshire over years and years asking for the history of their um, new partners and they were given, they were either rejected or they were given false information. And this came to light after several women were attacked by partners that they had been told were safe or they had not been told about this this partner's violent past when it was on record. So the interesting thing to me there is, apart from the just scale of it, is the self-referral. So someone opened a file and said, what's this? Well, must have done. Or, or, or maybe I'm assuming... I think that there was a specific incident of a woman who was attacked very, very badly oh, by see. a former partner who she'd applied for. And when Wiltshire realised this, they looked into it. And it seems and there was the... one individual dealing with all of these cases. And this individual was not fit for purpose, was not doing their but job. Isn't that, but, but hold on a second. Isn't that the way in which... Isn't that the story here, Chloe, in that... I think I find it difficult when a senior officer says we have an institutional racism problem or someone says, look at the patterns of misogyny. If we actually then zeroed in on this Wiltshire case and said, what happened here? Isn't that the lesson of Horizon? Is that when these things trip the alarm, you go, okay, let's let's just borrow into institutional behavior because understanding something like that, you have to understand a bunch of layers there. You have to understand what Claire's law is. You have to understand Wiltshire policing and referral of failures. You have to understand that system. And if we went after that, we'd probably understand much, much more about institutional misogyny and cultural police than we would probably running the statement of a senior police officer high in the news bulletin. I couldn't agree more. I'm, I'm going to pitch it to the slow news. <laughs> okay, let's do that. Um, Charles, what do you think of this? I think we shouldn't underplay the original Gavin Stevens remarks, which were in an interview with The Guardian, um, because I accept that acknowledging structural or institutional racism is, in a sense, a get-out-of-jail-free card for individual racist cops. But park that. Ask yourself, what is the solution to structural racism? It is reform of recruitment and training of officers... And if you go ahead and do that, then you solve the individual racist cop problem as well, long term. So that's slightly Pollyanna-ish. I've got two problems with this. I mean, one is which I should say we're having a podcast here discussing institutional racism for white people. So we, we, we may not call this right. But there's a second issue, which is the problem with this story, to my mind, is what happens if he said the opposite? Well, it it takes me to my point, which is actually I think this is as much about what's happening within the Metropolitan Police itself. So you'll remember that Sir Mark Rowley 
the head of the Met Police last year rejected the charge that was clearly made from Louise Casey's review of the behaviour of the Metropolitan Police. And at the time, it was incredibly controversial. And I know talking to people who were incredibly closely involved in that case at the time there was huge pressure put on him to accept that and quite at the last minute he decided not to and there was a a decently sized internal row about that decision and how actually as a result of that um, many people involved have sort of held up their hands and think well there's not going to be change on the level that was perhaps coming at that point so I wonder when I read that interview whether that was really what was behind all of it. And he, he has specifically rejected and refused to accept the term institutional racism or that there's any institutional misogyny in the Metropolitan Police. But Stevens goes out of his way in this interview to say, uh, what I'm saying is not that all cops are necessarily racist. Right. And it's as if he's nudging Rowley to say, have another think. All right, let's leave the police. Charles, we're going to come to you in a moment. We're going to take a beat and then turn our attention to the U.S., in the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. She Love Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. All right, Charles, let's turn to the US. Where next week we will, in the bitter cold of the prairies, witness the Iowa caucuses. Um, 330 million people, the Democrats, have ended up with the incumbent as their candidate, which would ordinarily be uncontroversial, but he's 81. If he wins, he'll be 86 by the time he leaves office, and he is visibly, audibly frail. Um There have been four years to anticipate this problem and come up with a solution. The Democrats have failed to do so, and Biden is trailing Trump in head-to-head polls. His approval ratings are at a record low for a first-term president at this stage in his first term. Uh, And 61% of Americans, including four out of 10 of those who voted for him last time around don't want him to run again. But he's doing so, and nothing in the Democratic Party or machinery has um, 
persuaded him to do anything else. In those four years, meanwhile, Donald Trump and his acolytes have been preparing. uh, And one of the projects that they have in mind for the first 100 days or first year or so of a second Trump presidency, as outlined under the headline Project 2025 by the Heritage Foundation, would be to purge senior echelons in federal departments of 20,000 career civil servants and replace them with political appointees. And just to take the Department of Justice as one example, the effect on the independence of the American judiciary could be catastrophic. And we know from uh, recent experience, uh, Trump's personal opinion of the American judiciary, which he claims has been weaponized against him. So, Charles, can I just stop? Because there are three different stories that seems to me you're talking about at the same time. One is the Republican primary process begins in Iowa next week. Yeah. Two, the Democrats seem to have decided it's Biden. Mm-hmm. And three, we're getting the shape of what a Trump presidency would look like. The story I'm pitching is the fact that the Democratic candidate is Biden. And it's a bit of an op-ed because I don't think it should be. But is it the case that it really is Biden? And I appreciate there are probably only three people who really know Joe Biden and a couple of others. I'm not Jill sure. and Valerie, his sister. Those are that. That's it. That's what everybody says. But is it the case that what he said on the anniversary of January the 6th, this is not to repeat what he said, but just to interpret it, is that I'm the candidate. I'm the person that will stop Donald Trump. Is that, is that what you take from the January the 6th This is a speech that he gave at Valley Forge, um, third anniversary of the January 6th insurrection, saying Trump is a threat to American democracy. And yes, this is the first sort of public articulation of what he's been saying in private. I'm the only proven Trump killer in the party. Trust me to do it again. And just to understand it, who other than Joe Biden believes that in the inner circle of Democrats, the Biden team, do you think they all believe it? Well, this is a question, um, full disclosure, that I've been trying to find an answer to for a podcast that comes out today. Um, And the answer is no, I don't think they believe it. So Joe Scarborough, a former Republican um, congressional representative, goes on telly on his own show sort of late last year and points out that um, Democrats, senior Democrats will say one thing in public, Biden's the candidate, a totally different thing in private, which is, ah, Biden's the candidate. What are we going to do about it? And uh, so I asked others who are much better plugged into senior Democratic circles than me, is this what's really happening? And and the answer is yes. And it's not inconceivable that he will uh, withdraw or will have a health event and be forced to withdraw over the next 10 months. 10 months is, is a long time. But I think the story that I want to pitch, uh, uh, the, the one line option that I had that's more boring than the one I gave is America's failing democracy in this very specific sense, which one of the two major parties um, has failed to produce uh, the right candidate for the moment in what is supposed to be the most vigorous democracy on earth. 
Katie, what do you think? I'm just completely baffled. I mean, I you know, I say that with my hands up that we've we've got to a point where we're facing this choice again. Uh, and I still I saw someone um, a close friend from New York recently who said to me, "You've got to understand that basically America is east and west, and the rest of it's in the middle, and that's how you get the political decisions that you do." I mean, it sounds so simplistic to me. I'm sure it's not quite as easy as that. But how do we get to a point where Biden is the answer? Um, surely there must be other people there. It's a very odd thing. We had this conversation over the holidays about democracy in 2024 because I think people are going to get very tired very quickly of all this talk about elections everywhere. People care about elections where they are, with the exception of the United States. And I wonder whether or not we would feel that democracy was so in the balance if it weren't for Trump. If it was just a run of India here, South Africa there, the UK, I'd be like, oh, this is an interesting coincidence. Seems to be a lot of politics in the news. But Trump makes all the difference to everyone's thinking about democracy. I think it's Trump along with Russia. I think it's the pairing of those, the non-Russian election, because it's not, I mean, they've even said it. we don't really need elections here. It's been said in Russia by senior officials. I think I think there's a convergence of those two things, because I also think that if we do get... I mean, it's interesting you talk about Project 25. I found it astounding. I, I, um, I listened to a talk by somebody from the Heritage Foundation talking about Project 25, how open they are about how they will dismantle the democratic institutions. They were like, we didn't get it right last time. These things were hindering us. So we need to make sure that we clear the way as soon as we put Trump in place. But what, but what are we saying, Charles, in terms of the story then? Because... So, so the the podcast is the Biden operation, is yeah. it? Yeah, and it's essentially about how we ended up with Biden. Yes, and and there are grown up justifications. There's an explanation, which and I came up and I can summarise it very quickly with a sort of six point plat justification that they offer. It's going to be a choice, not a referendum, and choice is between Biden and Trump, and so people will choose the non-Trump candidate. The economy is likely to improve with falling rates. It's about the base. Trump's base is fairly fixed, whereas Biden's can expand. Um, Biden doesn't have to reach everybody as Biden. He can reach uh, voters through influencers like Taylor Swift. And then, don't laugh, uh, his supporters say this is a better and a fitter Biden than in uh, 2020. Better because he's experienced and fitter because you can believe what his doctor says, whereas you can't believe what Trump's doctor says. And there's also a thing, isn't there, which is that American political operatives seem to me to be frightened of exposure. What happens when you put someone in front of the American process? It's so vigorous Mm -hmm. that, as Nikki Haley's discovering even the course of the last week, you suddenly find yourself saying the odd thing and you're really knocked about. And people on the Democratic side that I speak to say... You just can't do this in our system. You can't throw someone in in March or June or September and think the American people are going to wear it. But Biden and Trump both don't want the debates. That's what's interesting. I mean, the thing that's defined American politics and American elections are the debates. And both of these people, I mean, Biden, you can hardly make out what he says anymore. And Trump has rejected doing debates in the past. So what what kind of election are we going to have? And this gets to my thought coming in this morning and it's probably not for discussion in front of the mics but let's have it anyway which is what are we really saying here is how do the rules work and how have we by which I mean journalists who are supposedly really interested in politics and political systems been so complacent about the fact that either the rules don't work (coughs) 
or there are no rules or the politicians have gamed the rules. It just strikes me that if you talk to a bunch of sports fans, they will disagree passionately about the teams. They'll love their team and loathe the others, but they will t really engage on the rules. You know, was this or was this not a legitimate stumping out, the reverse sweep? Like, I mean, people will argue about the rules because they know that if you don't agree on the rules, there's no fairness in the game. In journalism, for too long, we haven't talked about the rules. The reason why you get a Democratic incumbent who is the sole candidate to be president is there's a convention. There's not a set of rules. I mean, convention in the British sense, not convention and in the American sense. And you're saying that the fourth estate should have called them on this? Yeah. One of the things that I think is crazy in our system is that, in the UK at least, you can vote 16 in a referendum in Scotland, but you can't vote at that age in the rest of the UK in a general election. We talk about the primaries as though they're a kind of bizarre circus. Look at the way MPs in the UK system are selected. It's completely arbitrary. Um, you know, so the, the parties set their own rules. And I just don't think, I've got to think there's got to be a way that we just zero in on the rules and understand who decides and how do those decisions get made. But you'll find there's no there there. I mean, the real complacency <laughs> is on the, I think, in this case, is on the part of the politicians, the party politicians, rather than the journalists. I, mean, I, can, I think I know what you're saying. I, I could point to specific cases where really clever journalists have had a good chin stroke about why Biden is the candidate, about his failings, blah, 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 blah. I'm thinking of David Brooks. Um, and come out in the final 200 words of a 1,500-word op-ed saying, but let's stick with the old man that we know. Um, to paraphrase Biden himself, don't compare me with the almighty, compare me with the alternative. That's a good way of summarising. But that's failure already, isn't it? Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, but but, but the, the, the root complacency is, is the party. And I think there's a lot to the criticism that senior Democrats have been like deers in, in headlights in rather the same way as senior Republicans have over the past um, six years of of the Trump miasma. Okay, let's have a go. Um, Katie, remember how this works. You can choose a story but not your own to lead the news. Um, I, I laugh uh, at the thought of that with you given that I spent most of my working time with you in the BBC. You said, well, of course my story should lead the news. <laughs> well, what other story is yeah. there? Um, you go first. What would you Editors are always right. choose um, between police in the US? Actually, I'm going to go police. And I think I'll either uh, even cave and say that I think it's better than the post office, because I think it's really, really important. I think I think our Metropolitan Police Services is not actually, despite all the um, claims last year that they would do this, I, th I don't think they've looked in on themselves and actually really seen the problem that is there to address. Chloe? I'm going to go with Biden, because I think it is... Uh, it's a story that is going to come up again and again and again. It does seem to me astounding that the Democrats haven't come up with another candidate, particularly given the danger. And I think in terms of internationally, the US election is going to affect us all, if at very least the war in Ukraine on our doorsteps. Um, and I am very concerned that Biden doesn't have what it takes to stop Trump. So I think it's a story. Giles? Definitely Horizon. It is to an extent a meta story, but, you know, what has brought it back into the spotlight right now? But I think it's no less compelling or important for that. So this is a funny conversation in some ways, because I thought 
as I walked in here today, I said, I wonder what people would picture. And I'd bet on Boeing, the window blowing out, just because I thought, good grief. I was on that? a plane when I saw that. Oh, no. Were you? <laughs> I seriously was. I was on a plane about oh. to take off from Athens. And I, I saw that and I was like, OK, better not show the kids what's on my phone right now. <laughs> I saw someone on TikTok with a little note goes, hey, guys, don't get on any of these planes. And I, and I love the hey, guys, in that, <laughs> that it's like a breezy... But I found myself thinking, wow, what happens as a consequence of that? Boeing says, look, we've checked the windows. And then what happens as a result? There are these plugs that have to be checked but on every plane, on every flight. Anyway, you know, that was obviously nerve-wracking. I know this, we may be out of time on this, but the Claudine Gay Harvard mm -hmm. story feels to me like something that's just going to run and run and run culturally. Um I have to confess that I am really fascinated by, are we going to see the end of Ron DeSantis in the next fortnight? Which is another way of saying the Nikki Haley story. Um, and I keep being surprised by the the surprise, including Gay, I suppose, as part of this, ramifications of Gaza. The way this has just ended up in so many places that are far, far from the Middle East. So I thought all of those stories would come. They didn't. For, for what it's worth, I would run in this order. I'd lead on Biden because I think that the numbers that you give, Giles, for the level of dissatisfaction with him among voters who backed him in 20 is really significant, and particularly in those states um, that will determine the election in November. Um, I'd run police second um, because I think that the internal politics of it are really interesting, but I would lead on it if we got into Wiltshire, if we discovered what was in that story, would say, okay, well, here we've got something. And I'm just being, you know, precious and difficult, Katie, about Horizon, because I feel like if you follow the news, you knew that story was there, and you've just discovered it, thanks to Toby Jones and ITV, well, good for you. But what so far has journalism, since that programme aired, brought to the story? I think not so much, uh, except perhaps a feeling that should have been there a long, long time ago. So with that, that's how I'd run it. Biden, police and the post office. If you've got views on how you think we should be um, thinking about the news, please do weigh in. As I said earlier on, um, just send an email, newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. For now, a big thank you to Giles Wattell, to Chloe Hadjimatheo and Katie Searle. Great to see you. Hope we'll see you a fair few times this course of uh, this busy year. Um, Good to be back, and thank you so much for listening. We're going to leave you with the sound of Susan Glasser, the New Yorker correspondent, explaining the way in which she, in conjunction with a German correspondent based in uh, Washington, developed one German compound noun to describe the feeling of anxiety at the prospect of a Trump administration. And if you're either wallowing in or avoiding Trumpschmerz, then listen to Charles Wattel's podcast, The Biden Operation. It's the Slow Newscast, and you can get it either in the Slow Newscast feed or anywhere you get your podcasts. A few years back, in the middle of the Trump presidency, I did ask my friend, Constanza Stelzenmuller, from the Brookings Institution. I said, you know, there ought to be one of those long German words for this state of essentially constant uh, worry and fear and, and angst about Trump being uh, in, in the presidency and, and what will he do next? And, you know, such that we could never just say in the Trump era, well, how are you doing? You have to say, well, under the circumstances, I'm okay, right? That it's, it's just one of those constant nagging things that now hangs over us, certainly 
here in Washington for those of us whose job it is to pay attention. So Constanza said, no, there is no such German word, but I will make one for you. She came back with a 33-letter, very, very German confection, which I will attempt to pronounce for you. I know all the components, but forgive me in advance for my pronunciation. The word that Constanza came up with for me is Trump Regnerung Schlamassel Schmerz. Now, the good news is she told me it's actually okay to shorten it. So the shortened word is one that I think really neatly captures the, the moment we're living in in American politics, and the word is Trump Schmerz. Tortoise. 